uh, it's always good to gather and spend some time together in God's Word. If you're visiting us this morning uh, for the first time or if you're kind of in a process right now, maybe looking for a church home, uh, we appreciate your visit this morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, let me give you just kind of a brief uh, explanation of where we are and what we're doing. We are in uh, a series uh, on the home and uh, studying uh, a passage of scripture in the book of Ephesians. Uh, don't turn there just yet uh, because I've got some other places for you to turn. Uh, but in the book of Ephesians, what the home, the Christian home should look like. Uh, we've just finished, uh, I think, six weeks dealing with marriage and husbands and wives. And we're going to move into dealing with parents and children and that relationship. Uh, but we, I felt like really... Um, felt like we needed to spend this Sunday doing what we're about to do. And I, I asked Scott and Brad to consider that with me, and we all agreed that this would be a well-spent Sunday dealing with marriage and then what happens in the case of divorce and remarriage and a biblical view on um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage in all one setting. So I'm hoping that this morning will be helpful for some folks. I, I have had a lot of... Um, um, angst, to be really honest with you, because I know this room, uh, this gathering is full of people with many stories and lots of heartache and lots of difficulty and lots of pain um, associated with marriage stuff. And man, I want to be very, very, very sensitive to that. I want to be very um, careful and loving and gentle, but I also don't want to compromise on what it looks like God's Word is saying. So I I hope you're expecting that of me. I hope you're expecting me to unpack it as it as it reads. So that's my goal this morning is to gently and lovingly see what God's word has to say about this matter of uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, I want to begin with prayer this morning. I want to pray for another church in our community, which we do by practice, and, uh, and then we'll climb into our, our uh, message. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, before I ask some specifics about how we spend these next few minutes, Lord, I want to pray for Chris and Melissa Yost and Wesley United Methodist Church. Lord, I want to pray that um, Wesley is um, experiencing your blessing, Lord, that they are walking in, um, I guess, your ways and your plan for them, that they are, are responding to things that you're calling them to as a church and as, a, 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 as individuals within the church and families. Lord, we pray that they are a growing, healthy, vibrant body. I pray for Chris and Melissa as a pastor and his wife. Lord, I, I pray for their marriage. I pray that it is blessed. I pray that some of what we've been studying these last few weeks is um, um, the kind of thing that they're walking in, that they are walking in a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. And that in many ways, they're putting on display to Wesley uh, what that looks like. Lord, and that's a, a high... Uh, call and a high prayer and a high hope and expectation and I pray that for Chris and Melissa I pray that for Ben and Christy I pray that for Brad and Christy uh, for Scott and Lindsay for other pastors and their wives in this community Lord just pray that that in some ways by by your grace and your mercy you will um, empower us enable us help us um, albeit frailly and feebly show our churches and our families what the gospel is supposed to look like Lord and I um, I, uh, that's a big prayer, and I just pray that you would do that to uh, 
for our pastors and their, and their wives. And Lord, I pray that for the Christians in the community too, that just that would be a, especially for those in this church that have just walked in this and just considered this series of messages and actually what it means that how we move in our marriages would become really important to us. Lord, I pray that men would be reading and studying and talking together about how to be better husbands. I pray that wives would be uh, talking with one another and praying together and considering together how they can be better wives. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that the result of that will be that tomorrow's church sees what the gospel looks like because they're living in it. That's a big prayer too, but a, one that is heartfelt. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will... Um, that you will speak to uh, those in this room, Lord, all of us, that you will equip us with your view and your eyes on divorce and remarriage and marriage in general. Lord, I'm thankful that as we step off into this, this sermon that I confess is uh, um, a little concerning and frightening for me as a pastor, preacher, Lord, I'm thankful that what we're talking about right now is not the ultimate, but the penultimate. And I'm thankful that the ultimate that we walk in, that we sing about, that we enjoy, that we gather to celebrate is the wonderful, amazing groom that we have in Christ and the relationship between Christ and the church. Lord, I pray that will be a thread throughout this sermon. I pray that it will undergird every word, that it will minister to every heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have five passages that I plan to go to this morning. I want to share with you what those passages are so you maybe can go ahead and look those up and have a bookmark or a, um, a marker or whatever, your pen or something to mark those pages so you can s sort of move around uh, nimbly. Um, so the passages are Malachi 2. I'll give you a page number for your pew Bible. And I know we don't have pews, but the Bible that's under your seat um, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to, to take that Bible, use that this morning. If you don't have a Bible, then put your name in the front of that one and call it yours because I want you to have it. But if you don't have one with you this morning, but you have one at home, then just use that one this morning and the page numbers will reconcile with or will coincide with um, what I'm sharing with you. And they'll also coincide with a lot of the English Standard Versions. Malachi 2, page 801. Ephesians 5, page 979. Matthew 19, page 824, Deuteronomy 24, page 165, and 1 Corinthians 7, page 955. That's not a clue of how long the sermon's going to be either, in case you're wondering, like, oh man, it sounds like we're in for a doozy. I, I don't think it'll be any longer than normal, I hope not, but the, uh, I want to be thorough, and I want to be careful, and I want to be wise in how we deal with this matter. Those, those references, again, I'll say them quickly this time. Malachi 2, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, Deuteronomy 24, and 1 Corinthians 7. Animals uh, fascinate me. I, I grew up in the home of a veterinarian that was, he was also a zoo vet. Uh, he did small animals, but he was also a zoo vet. And I've always enjoyed um, all manner of critters, and uh, I find it interesting that some animals in our animal kingdom actually mate for life. The penguin is one that um, 
Luke actually knew off the top of his head. We were talking about it in the car last week, and uh, the penguin mates for life. That's kind of cool. They're always wearing their their wedding attire. That's kind of cool. I think that's neat. <laughs> Barn owls, bald eagles, okay, those mate for life. Uh, beavers. Thought this was kind of cool. Beavers mate for life during their third year. Their babies um, are born in the spring, and both parents care for them, which is kind of cool, for about two years. And once they reach a certain age, then they go off and start their own family. The yearlings, though, before they reach the age to start their own family, help care for the next litter. I mean, that's just, I think that's so cool that how do they know to do that? You know, how do they, how does a male and female beaver stick around and say, hey, let's do life together? Let's raise some little critters and let's teach the older critters how to care for the youngest. That's just really neat to me. Um, gibbons, mate for life. Wolves, French angelfish, which I'm just going to say, how do they know? I mean, how do you really know? Because they all look the same and they're swimming around. You chasing them? I mean, how do you know they mate for life? But that, it's, it's what they say. Shingleback skink, that, that mates for life. Another one, a weird. Swans mate for life. It's kind of cool. The mute swan typically mates for life. If a female, I thought this was kind of funny, if a female swan loses her mate, she typically finds a new, younger mate rather quickly. Like she learned that from the cougar, I guess. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Pretty funny. Albatrosses mate for life. And if one partner dies, the surviving bird may search for years for a new mate. An albatross can live to be 50 years old. I don't know why I think that's cool. I just do. I, maybe I think it's cool, and maybe some of you join me in thinking that's kind of cool uh, because critters are kind of acting like people. They're kind of acting like us. I, I mean, I don't find rabbits so admirable. You know, or rats or mice. I don't find them so admirable, but I find these guys, these critters that are sort of, there's something in them, what they're doing and how they're moving together that's admirable to me, that I appreciate seeing critters that dedicate their lives to another critter seem special because I think they're acting like people. Because I think we all agree and we can all recognize that people were meant for lifelong commitments. I saw a video on Facebook recently that I'm going to show. It's only, I think we found the 32nd version. Did you guys find the 32nd version and get that queued up? Is it working? Okay. All right. Let me preface this video quickly. Um, and also after, would you look and see how many views there are? You may not be able to see that as you're looking at right now, but I bet there's a bunch. I've probably viewed it 30 times. So of these million times, I've probably viewed it 30 times. This is an, a guy that's has an older fellow that's waiting for his wife at the airport. Okay. Um, this little clip is about 30 seconds. I saw a longer version that was about three minutes and he stood there like this for three minutes or so, like a statue before his wife shows up. He watched people come and go. He's got his sandals on with white socks. <laughs> He's got flowers. He's got candy in one hand, flowers in the other. He plants a big kiss on her. He's looking around. He hands her the flowers, hands her the candy, and then one kiss just wasn't enough. Let me just go back in again. It's pretty cool. You can turn that off. Um, there was a sound. Of, there were sound effects that went along with that. I'm kind of glad you didn't play them. But it was whoever was videoing it, this family that's videoing, is going, "Oh, it's so sweet. It's so cute." 
I think they kind of gave voice to, I think, what we all feel when we see something like that. When I was a young man growing up, I wanted to be like Charles Bronson, okay, and Clint Eastwood. You know, I, I'm not attached to anybody. I don't need anybody. I'm not going to really, you know, I kind of breeze into town and I breeze out on my horse and, you know, that, that, that sort of mindset, that, that macho mindset was what I wanted to be as a young man. But now as I'm about to turn 50, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that guy that stands like a statue waiting for his bride that he cannot wait to see. Maybe not the sandals and white socks, but everything else. <laughs> the flowers and the candy and what looked like adoration for his wife. Man, I think there's something in us that recognizes and enjoys that we were meant for one another for life. The problem is, sometimes it doesn't go the distance. For whatever reason, for many millions of reasons, it may go south. And I think it's important for us to dedicate a Sunday too, in light of, and at the tail end of six Sundays on marriage and husbands and wives, to dedicate a Sunday to making sense of divorce. What happens when things go south? How do we as Christians interpret those circumstances and interpret that event? Uh, so today what I'm hoping to do is to deal with five questions. I emailed these questions out earlier this week, uh, but some of you may not, not be on our email group or some of you may not recall. So I'll share with you what the questions are. They're really going to be our guide for the morning. So if you wonder where we are in the uh, sermon, um, you can just follow these questions and know that we're, we're making progress. The first question is, how does God feel about divorce? I hope we all want to ask and answer that question first. Because that should be the first and most important question. Second, can the one flesh union be broken? One flesh union of marriage be broken? And if so, how? How can it be broken? Third, are there biblical grounds for divorce? And I should say, let me qualify that with another word. Are there biblical justifiable grounds for divorce? Are there biblical justifiable grounds for divorce? Fourth, is it permissible to remarry once divorced? And fifth, what should you do if you're divorced and remarried wrongly? If we get through this sermon and get to point five and you go, oh, okay, I didn't, apparently the, the route that I took was not through justifiable or biblically justifiable uh, route, and here I am divorced and remarried, what do I do about that? Okay, so that'll be the fifth question. So let's deal with our first question. How does God feel about divorce? Turn to Malachi 2. Malachi 2. Let me give you a little bit of context for Malachi. Malachi is um, one of the minor prophets. It's right here at the back end of the, New Te or the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, I had a pastor that joked about being the Italian prophet Malachi. I wasn't going to do that, but I thought I'd throw it out there. You know, anything lighthearted today might be helpful. So Malachi, Malachi, um, the, the context for Malachi is he's a prophet who is speaking to not just Judah, but also to Israel, but primarily to Judah after the exile, after Judah has gone into exile into Babylon, uh, Malachi is speaking in what is called post-exilic uh, context there where he's addressing uh, Judah, after like they've moved back into the land, okay. This is after Daniel, 
after Ezekiel, kind of give you some time frame, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those guys, they've all moved back to the promised land again. Okay, they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the, the, um, the wall around uh, Jerusalem, and that's the context that Malachi is speaking into. And you might be familiar with Malachi in some ways. A lot of times people refer to Malachi of, uh, when they're talking about tithes and offerings. People often preach uh, from Malachi when they're preaching on tithes and offerings. And, and um, the, the, the God will open up the whole storehouse of heaven and blessings for you if you don't withhold. Okay, there's some problems that are going on in this people post-exilic. You would think they learned their lesson. It's just a proof that, man, they've been ripped from their home. They've gone into exile in Babylon. And here they move back home, and they still got tons of problems. One of those problems is they're being stingy, and they're not giving to God. Okay, and that's why that's in there. But there's something else that's in there, too, in here, too, in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. I want you to see what's going on. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why, then, are we faithless to one another? Okay, they're not just withholding from God, that's dealt with in chapter 3, but they're all also being faithless to one another, and watch how. Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and an abomination, or excuse me, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Okay, in some ways, he's speaking metaphorically about what they've done here. Maybe they have compromised by marrying foreign wives. Okay, they've just been in Babylon. You know, they've spent a period of time in Babylon, and maybe they've married some of the Babylonian daughters. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, watch what unfolds here in this passage. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Okay, watch this. To whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the spirit in their union. That's a beautiful picture. Didn't he unite man and woman with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Hey, add to their issue of being stingy, post-exilic, they're also being unfaithful to their wives by hating them, is what this language communicates here, by divorcing them, likely to marry foreign wives. Hating their wives by divorcing them. Now, this, uh, I found that this Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 specifically, is one of the most difficult translation or difficult Hebrew passages to translate in our Bibles. Okay? The ESV reads just like I read it. The New American Standard reads this way that gives us a better sense of what's going on in the passage. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 from the New American Standard. This is God speaking. For I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. 
So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Okay, what's going on in this Malachi passage, is, which is fascinating to me and beautiful, is that he is intertwining the covenant that Judah has with God with the covenant that men have with their wives. It's beautiful because he's showing these things aren't disconnected. See, there was a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism that wanted to separate spiritual stuff from physical stuff. And we would be shocked how often we want to do the same. He's making the point with post-exilic Judah that your relationship with me has everything to do with your relationship with your spouse. You're saying you love me and you're trampling my courts, yet here you are divorcing your own wives. That vertical covenant is intertwined with the horizontal covenant with their wives. And how they're doing with God is connected to how they're doing with their wives. And he calls it here in the ESV translation faithlessness when men are divorcing their wives. And the New American Standard says he hates it. Man, I think God surely must hate all that goes with divorce. All the pain, all the fights that likely lead up to it and through it. The harsh words, I'm sure God must hate those things. I'm sure he must hate the impact that it has on the children, if there are children involved. I'm sure God must hate the legal issues and the wranglings over who gets what. But mostly it seems he hates it because of what it represents and the implications. Because the covenant between a man and woman is connected to the covenant between man and God. I'm sure he hates it for all those other reasons, but apparently he hates it mostly because of what it says about the covenant between God and his people. In Malachi, how they're treating their wives is connected to how they're treating their God. If you've been paying attention in Ephesians chapter 5, this shouldn't be news to you. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. You should almost have this on speed dial given the amount of time that we spent there. Ephesians chapter 5. We're dealing with three sub-points on this first question. And we're, part of, we're dealing with the first question right now. How does God feel about divorce? We're going to answer it first of all. We've established, first of all, he hates it. But I want you to understand why. He hates it because of what it says about the covenant between he and his people. Between God and his people. I want you to show you, show you this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage language, obviously. I bet it was read at every single wedding that's connected to every single married person in this room. In the next verse, this mystery, this marriage thing that we're talking about is profound, and it's been a mystery for thousands of years before Christ. And now here it's explained and revealed. This mystery... He says, I'm saying it refers, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. If you want to understand why God hates divorce, then you've got to appreciate it's because of what it says about the relationship between Christ and the church. You saw it in Malachi, what it says about the relationship between God and his people. This passage in Ephesians chapter 5 has been a touchstone for us these last few weeks. Nearly every sermon we've referred to it. You know, we're playing um, Twister. It's the color that we keep a hand or a foot on at every single moment when we're dealing with all these other issues. 
it is central to this conversation about marriage is that it refers to Christ and the church. When you come to understand what marriage means and what it refers to more than metaphor, more than simile, then you're beginning to understand why God hates when something breaks that up. It refers to Christ and the church. Now, divorce so far in these passages, these couple of passages we looked at, in Malachi 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, we can glean that divorce is referred to here as faithlessness. The, the New, New American Standard called it treachery. That's a strong word, isn't it? Faithlessness and treachery against what we would call the reputation between Christ and the church and God and his people. Now you can understand why he's using those words and why, in fact, he's saying that he hates it. It's a covenant between a husband and a wife that's connected to a covenant between God and his people. That's why God hates divorce. Now, that's the first sub-point under that question. This is the only question that has sub-points, too, just to give you a little reference. Okay, here's the second thing I want you to get in regards to that question. Does God, how does God feel about divorce? He hates it. Okay, here's the second point. Yet, God provided for it. God provided the ability to divorce to his people. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Or for his people, not to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to share a passage from Deuteronomy 24, and um, I'm going to explain it, deal with it later. Okay, But I'm just going to share um, a couple of passages leading up to 24 that I think are important when we're, we're dealing with this question. How does God feel about divorce? Okay, We know he hates it, but let me show you. He's made a provision for it. There's a couple of passages in Deuteronomy 22. You can just listen to these passages, and I'll briefly explain them. Uh, but I'm making a point here, so just go along with me here for a minute. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 18, there's a guy that marries uh, his betrothed, and then he comes to the elders of the um, people of God there and says, Hey, turns out my wife was not a virgin, Okay, and I want to undo this whole thing. Okay, And in this case... The, the parents of the daughter say, oh, yes, she was, and here's proof. Okay, they somehow proved it to the elders. And the, here's what happened next in verse 18 of 22. Then the elders of the city shall take the man and whip him. Okay, guy that accuses his wife wrongly of not being a virgin, they take him and whip him. That's just greatness. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon the virgin, upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he may not divorce her all his days. That's the first mention of the word divorce in our Bibles. Okay, there's lots of story that's unfolded up to this point. Okay, this is about, Deuteronomy is going to be about 1,500 years before Christ. It's about 500 years after Abraham. Okay, lots of story has unfolded. The nearly, pretty much the entire book of Genesis has unfolded to this point. Okay, this is a book of the law and it's dealing with um, this, this matter. It's introducing this idea, this D word. I mean, if you're reading, you're going, okay, what's this D thing I've never seen before? What is divorce? Even before you're trying to figure out and make sense of what it's talking about in these circumstances, you have to first go, divorce, what is that? He brings it up a few verses later, too, in uh, 
chapter 22, verses 28 and 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver. She shall be his wife because he's violated her. He may not, there's the D word again. He may not divorce her all his days. Okay, what I want you to get here, this might be like, man, what in the world are you talking about? There's this D word that's shown up in the book of the law. And it's not shown up as something that is uh, debated about whether it should even be or not. Let me show you here in verse 24. It's a little, little more uh, detailed account dealing with this D word. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, we don't know what in the world that's referring to, and I'll deal with this later in the morning. And he writes her a certificate of D, there it is, that D word, divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, there it is again, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies or took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. I'm gonna come back and explain this later, so I'm gonna just stop right there. But what I wanna point out is four times so far this D word has been introduced into the book of the law. Before we even deal with the circumstances that are connected to that, I want you to see that in the book of the law, this D word has been introduced. Just to consider, first of all, it's been provided in the law as an out. Now, not in the case of these passages I read in 22, but in the case over here in 24 for some indecency. God who provided the law to his people also provided this thing called Divorce. He made a provision in the law for divorce due to indecency, some indecency. Okay, man, let's, before we even move on, we've got to recognize that God gave this to his people. This passage doesn't debate, these passages don't debate about whether or not divorce is okay. It's simply presented as a matter of fact, as a provision for the married. And before we consider what a permissible divorce or what's permissible or sinful, we need to first consider that God made a provision for it in the law. Okay, what God has joined here, what I want you to understand, that God sees divorce too. It's not a man-made thing. God gave it to his people. Okay, just like God recognizes marriage, what happens in a, in a, a married, marriage chapel? Or what happens in here when someone gets married or in a church or in a court? What happens here, God recognizes in heaven. And what is broken up here is also recognized in heaven. It, it's, a, it's a real thing, this thing divorce. What is joined here is recognized there and what is broken here is recognized there. Okay, so the first thing, God hates it, but yet God gave it to his people. Now, why did he give it to his people? Turn to Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our morning in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Matthew 19. Okay, God hates divorce, yet he provided divorce to his people. This D word that parachuted in was, came from God. It's part of the law. Okay, he provided it to his people. Now, why did he do that? 
in chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus starts talking about divorce. The Pharisees are trying to trip him up on this matter of divorce and remarriage. And they test him by asking in verse 3, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're referring to these passages that I just read over there in Deuteronomy chapter 24 specifically. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I'm going to read that passage again because I want you to hear that. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed for you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Okay, what I want you to see from this passage, or what I want you to get from this passage, is that God hates divorce, yet he's letting his people do this thing that he hates. And the reason he's letting them do it is because of their hardness of their hearts. He's made a provision for them, and we might even call it a concession for them because of the hardness of their hearts. I want you to understand this about divorce. Sin and divorce go hand in hand. We're talking about hardness of heart. We're talking about sin. Sin and divorce go hand in hand. Divorce cannot happen without sin. Somebody's sinning when a divorce happens. One or the other or both. It is out of the hardness of the heart that this thing was given to the people of God. Divorce cannot happen without sin, either by one or by both. God did not make a provision for sin, though. Listen to this. He made a provision for sinful sinful folk to go on with life in the wake of sin. I want you guys to hear that. Those of you who are like struggling with this, what I've just said so far, I want you to hear this. God did not make a provision for sin when he provided divorce as a concession to his people. He made a provision and a concession for sinful folk with hard hearts to go on in the wake of sin with life. Because God is good like that. Because he's gracious like that. Man, but before we even move on and consider any more about that, let's just pause just for a second. And say, Man, thank you, God, for being so gracious to sinful, hard-hearted people. Thank you for making a way to where we can move on with life in the wake of some messy, heartaching, heartbreaking sin. It's a concession. And I, I want you to get this together, though. It's a concession that God gave his people, but it was not God's intention It was not God's intention. And he says that. Jesus says that. It wasn't that way from the very beginning. The intention was was that it should be for life, period. So on that first question, how does God feel about divorce? Well, he hates it because of what marriage refers to. Okay? It should never be celebrated. It is not a blessing. It is a provision and a concession for hard-hearted people to move on with life. Okay, the second question. 
Can the one flesh union of marriage be broken? If so, how? Okay, Matthew 19 is where we are. I think if I've had you turn somewhere, I think that's the last place we are. So if that's where you are, you're in the right place. I want you to first consider Christ's words. I read them and did not point them out in verse... um, Here it is. Start in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Here it is. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right, we're dealing with the question, can the one flesh union of marriage be broken, and if so, how? When Jesus says the words, what God has joined together, let no man separate, there's the implication that it can be separated. It is a profound union. We talked about it last week, that metallurgy sort of imagery where he he melds copper with silver in this unbelievable event of marriage where this beautiful union. It's a beautiful union that he joins together. And it is profound. But it is not inseparable. It can be separated. And in verse 9, Jesus goes into how, just how. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This word here, sexual immorality, actually the Greek word is the word pornea. The Greek word pornea, you probably can recognize the root word and go, oh, that sounds like pornography. Okay, if you're recognizing the root word and connecting it to pornography, that's an appropriate connection because it fits to all manner of pornographic things or sexual, sexually immoral things. Okay, it's a generic term that is a broad meaning. Okay, and it's so broad that some have even argued that it includes some things that aren't even sexual, just sinful things that are so broad or that, that this word is broad enough to even capture some things that aren't even, even sexual. But how's it used in this sense? I mean, that's what we got to know. If he's talking about something that actually could result in a broken union, let's figure out exactly what he's talking to. And we have to tie this back to the passage I just read. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is talking union language. He's talking the, the union of a husband and a wife, and then he makes a provision for divorce in verse 9. And what he's getting at here, I think, is this this concept that this particular use of this word, pornea, in this case, is speaking of a union-breaking type of sexual immorality. Something that breaks that profound union. The type of sexual immorality is the kind that breaks the union. Okay? Divorce is the recognition of a broken marital union of the flesh union to another. Okay, that's what I want to get at here in these next couple minutes. I want to help you see this. There's a, uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians I'll read to you that'll just kind of give you a little bit of, of uh, background and context of what I'm getting at. For 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's the chapter right in front of where we're going to be going next. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
the union that he's talking about here, the breakup of the union or the sexual immorality is specifically of the kind that breaks the initial union between a man and a woman and a husband and wife in marriage. We're talking about a very specific kind of pornea that involves union to another. From this passage I just read in 1 Corinthians 6, union with a prostitute means union with her. There's something profound happens when two people participate in sexual intercourse with one another. A union takes place with that person. So it's not just the marital ceremony that binds them into one but the consequent consummation of the marriage in the marital bed that binds them into one. Okay, now let me just interject this right here. I think this is a fitting place to do this with the young people that we have in the room, the teenagers and the singles and young people. Let me just interject this. This is all the more reason to view chastity with biblical eyes. Why should you not have sex before marriage? Why should you not have sex outside of marriage? Yes, it might be because your mom and dad said you shouldn't. It might be because your pastor or teacher said you shouldn't. But here's some great reasons to really connect to. You think it's just a one-night stand? You think it's just a little foray and something that, that, that you can just get over? But apparently, according to this, it has lasting and profound effects because a union took place. Something happened there when you had sexual relationship with someone else. Sex is God's wedding gift for the married and is the flesh fulfillment of what God has reckoned with two becoming one in the covenant of marriage. Okay, this provision that Christ makes here in this Matthew chapter 19 passage is a provision for someone to justifiably divorce when that one flesh union that happens between a man and woman in the bounds of marriage is broken by union to another, by a physical union with another, because that union is profound, and it's profound enough that it can be broken by union to another. What God has joined together is awesome and profound, but it is not inseparable. It can be broken by sexual union. With another. The third question What are the biblical grounds for divorce? I added the word justifiable grounds, justifiable, excuse me, justifiable biblical grounds for divorce. We've gotten at one of them right there. I hope you see that just sitting right by the net. Sexual immorality is the obvious one. When the marriage covenant has been broken by union with another, is sort of the litmus test. For when are there biblical grounds for justifiable divorce? Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, the implication there is that one who divorces his wife for sexual immorality can then marry another and not commit adultery. It is the first of two cases of justifiable biblical grounds for divorce. This divorce clause was thought to be so understood it's not even mentioned in the other two gospel accounts of this conversation. This Matthew 19 passage is the only place in the gospels where Jesus specifically includes the case of sexual morality. In the other gospel accounts, it's left out. And it's left out because they believe that it was so understood it was a given. Well, of course the marital union is 
rightfully and justifiably broken up through divorce when someone has united to someone else sexually. This divorce clause was so understood, in fact, that Paul leaves it out of the reference we're going to look at here in a moment when he's referring to what Christ taught on the matter in 1 Corinthians 7. Sexual immorality of the kind that means union with someone other than your spouse is biblical, justifiable grounds for divorce. Now let me add this in here too. It is biblical grounds for divorce, but it's not commanded. Man, I want a room full of people that are not sitting here looking for a way out, but a room full of people who are sitting here looking for a way to to, to keep on, even in the wake of something so harmful and terrible as sexual morality within a marriage. It does not have to be normative. Christians, of all people, have the goods to forgive even something so harmful as infidelity. I've seen it happen, and man, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. It does not have to be a given. A woman, I'm telling you right now, is a trophy of God's grace when she forgives a husband who sinned against her and against her God in adultery. A trophy of God's grace. A man is a testament to the gospel and the greatness of the gospel when he forgives a wife who has broken their covenant vows. Christians, this gospel is this good. These things that we walk in week by week is that able. They are that able. This gospel is that good and this God can not only heal a break like a broken union through infidelity, He can actually make it stronger than it was before. I've seen it happen. So man, while we're talking about justifiable grounds for divorce in here, I hope we don't have a room full of people thinking, finally and out. I hope instead we're a room full of people thinking, man, but what goods do we have to walk in, even in the aftermath of that? Divorce is permitted but not required. Repented or not, sexual morality though is, let me say it clearly, Biblical justifiable grounds for divorce. The other reason, the other grounds for divorce is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can turn there now. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The first clear uh, grounds for, or justifiable grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. The second comes from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 10 with Paul referring to what the Lord taught on the matter. Remember I just said just now that this sexual morality clause was thought to be so understood that it's left out of some references. It's left out of this reference. When Paul's speaking of Christ's teaching on it, he doesn't even mention the sexual morality clause. Listen to what he says. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a moment. I want to spend these next few minutes looking at the next passage. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. In some ways, this is Paul saying, okay, here's what Jesus taught on the matter, and here's what I'm going to add to what he taught. It's not replacing what Jesus taught. He's saying, I want to add 
this in addition to what Jesus taught. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. This is not to say that an unbeliever is made um, somehow a Christian by their spouse being a believer. Okay, this is to say that a spouse or a, a husband or wife who is a believer in an unbelieving home has a holifying, and I'm make up that word, a sanctifying effect on a home as they are able to bear the good news and be a bright and shiny, salty instrument in that home. Okay, that's what's being said here. He's not saying that somehow they're made holy in a saving sense. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it's written, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, okay, then this word is used synonymously with divorce. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? And it's going back to that same argument. Stick with that unbelieving spouse if you're able. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know if your sanctifying effect in that home won't save that man and actually be the thing that God uses to bring them to salvation? How do you not know, husband, whether you will actually save or if whether you will save your wife? Now, the thing I want to bring out in verses 12 through 16 specifically is uh, Paul's adding this, this sort of um, justifiable divorce clause to the one that we already considered through sexual immorality and to be specific, adultery, union-breaking sexual immorality. If an unbelieving spouse vacates the marital covenant by physically walking out on the husband or wife, by departing from the marital vows, by absence, by mistreatment, it can be included in there, by abuse, those are grounds for biblically justifiable divorce. There might even be a case where an unbelieving spouse is still physically in the home but by their treatment of the husband or wife, or mistreatment, they have vacated the marital covenant. And that would be justifiable grounds for divorce. Now, this is just a whole other wrinkle here, too. I, some of you are paying real close attention to these, my language here. And I'm being very specific about what, if you know, I'm, I'm enslaved to my notes this morning, largely, because I want to be very careful about how I'm saying this. But let me include this thought. What's, what's interesting behind this clause, the abandonment by an unbeliever clause, is that you might be married to a believing spouse who then, through their actions, proves to be an unbeliever. You might be married to a believing spouse who, if they're part of a church that exercises church discipline, would have that husband or wife under the church discipline process, and if they're not repentant, they would then be removed from the church and would be treated like a tax collector or sinner, i.e. treated like an unbeliever. So in that case, there would be grounds for divorce, in this case, as abandonment by an unbeliever. You could actually have a spouse who, who trusts Christ, yet in the way they are responding to this matter and the sin in their lives and the sin that's breaking this couple apart, 
proves to be an unbeliever. Divorce, though, in this case as well, just like in the adultery case, does not have to happen in the case of an unbelieving husband or wife. For the faith of the wife or the husband might be what God uses to win the husband or wife to the Lord. I'm going to interject this reminder. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because we've got to get this. We should not, though, we're dealing with these two outs, these two justifiable reasons, sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever. We should not be in the business of looking for and being aggressive about looking for the outs. We, as the people of God, should be clinging to the great hope that we have in a God who is never idle and who can change any heart. Now, the fourth question, are the divorced free to remarry? I'm going to deal with three cases here. In the case of a broken marital union from sexual immorality. A husband and wife are married. The marital union takes place in the covenant ceremony, in the consummation. They're married. And then one or the other commits adultery and then breaks this marital bond between the man and woman by uniting to another. Okay, In that case, in the case of a broken marital union from sexual immorality, there is no stated... And no even implied restriction for those whose marriages ended in divorce resulting from sexual immorality from remarrying. There's no stated or even implied restriction from those or for those whose marriages ended in divorce resulting from sexual immorality keeping them from remarrying. And that's for the offender or the offended. If the covenant union has been broken due to infidelity by one or both the husband and the wife, they are free to divorce and remarry. Okay, that looks like it's a very clear, clear development. They are free to divorce and remarry. In the case of abandonment, in the case of abandonment of the marriage by an unbelieving spouse, this 1 Corinthians passage that we just looked at, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 15, it says, you are not enslaved. That language is the same language that's used later in the chapter in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. This language, you are not enslaved, implies you can remarry. In the case of being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, it appears that you are free to remarry. Now, here's where things get hard for me. Here's where things get really difficult. In the case of unbiblical, unjustifiable divorce, in the case of those who've divorced for reasons where they're just like, I'm sick of you. I cannot imagine the rest of my life with you. I'm tired of the fights. I'm tired of the, the money issues, the kid issues, the life issues. I don't love you anymore. Okay? In the case of I'm done with this matter because I'm just done with you, those, when it's not sexual immorality and not abandonment by an unbeliever, appear to fit in Christ's teachings there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to read it specifically so it's fresh in front of us. Chapter 7, verse 10, to the married, okay, in this case, he's speaking to believing married folk. 
Because he's just in the later passage differentiated between an unbelieving spouse and a believing. He's speaking to married folk. And look what he says, or Christian married folk. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. It appears clear from this passage that for those that just have what we might call an unjustifiable divorce, there are other people that use the term illegitimate divorce. I don't want to use that term because I want you to know that God still recognizes that divorce, even if it's not something that he would, or that would qualify as biblically justifiable. He still recognizes it. He can recognize it without approving it. They should remain single or reconcile. Man, if the covenant has not been broken due to sexual sin or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, then they should either remain single or reconcile to their spouse. Because were they to remarry, they would be making adulterers of themselves and whoever they remarried. Man, that's the hard stuff right there. That's really like, oh, okay, wait a second. What does that mean? When you remarry on grounds that are unjust, when you divorce and remarry on grounds that are not biblically justifiable, because you say, I'm just calling this thing quits, you're still in union with your first spouse. So there hadn't been a broken union. So when you, then you go marry another, you are creating a situation of, of, of adultery. Okay, here's, let, me, let me put it to you this way. A man committing adultery within the bounds of marriage by cheating on his wife. Okay, visualize this. A man committing adultery within the bounds of marriage by cheating on his wife is no different than a man divorcing his wife without cause. In other words, unjustifiable reasons and marrying another. He's made an adulterer of himself either way. He's made an adulterer of himself and his new spouse. Man, that might be a new parking place for you to think through that. But I want, I'm going to say it again because I want you to think on that. A man committing adultery within the bounds of marriage by cheating on his wife, i.e. adultery, is no different than a man divorcing his wife without cause and marrying another because he's still in union with her. He's made an adulterer of himself and his new spouse. Divorce apart from sexual immorality and our abandonment makes adulterers of both the husband and the wife should they remarry for their covenant responsibility and their union with their former spouse is still intact. I'm going to just tell you right now, these are the hardest requests in the world for me. It happens for me, it happens for Scott, it happens for Brad, where folks say, hey man, I'm in love and you're a friend I went to college with. Happened to me about two weeks ago. You're a friend I went to college with and what are you doing in March? Full of excitement. I want you to marry us. And I'm like, well, I have to do some vetting here. I have to try and figure out why your, your previous marriage ended in divorce. And if you have grounds for remarriage. And there's some friendships that have ended over that conversation. That's hard. That's hard. I would love to change this and just say, yippee, let's throw a wedding party for everybody. Whoever wants to get married whenever. That sure would be easy and fun. But man, that's not the way it's worked out. Folks come to me and say, we love each other and we love the Lord and you're saying you won't marry us. And I'm saying if it fits into this category, if you're still in union with your former spouse, 
I'm going to tell you, you need to remain single by the grace and the glory of the Lord. You need to remain single or you need to reconcile to your spouse. And if a spouse then is remarried to someone else, then remain single and his grace is sufficient. It's easy for me to say, I know I'm not in that situation, but I trust that grace is dispensed on demand like manna. There'll be enough tomorrow morning just to get you through that experience. Are the divorced free to remarry? Yes, in the case of sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever. No, in other cases. The fifth question. What should you do if you are divorced or remarried wrongly? Let me just address before I deal with this question, this last question briefly. We're getting toward the end here. If you're divorced justifiably and remarried and you feel some sense of shame, let me encourage you to jettison that. Part of what I was hoping to do today was to give some folks a parking place for, now I can make sense of what happened. And it looks like I had biblically justifiable grounds for divorce. And I've carried around shame for decades, maybe. Maybe this is the day and the place where you jettison that shame. What, what you should do, maybe, and what you're, what, what you're having a tough time differentiating between shame and mourning. If you're feeling mourning over the loss of a marriage and a marriage failing, that's appropriate. That's okay. And you should feel mourning given what it portrays, given what it refers to, Christ in the church. But don't feel shame. We should all feel mourning when someone divorces. All of us, both the divorced and those who are part of it next to them and standing beside them and are break, our hearts should break with them because what it says, it sullies the name of Christ in the church. Absolutely mourn, but don't carry around shame if you were justifiably divorced and remarried. Man, God can and does make all things new. There are folks in this room that are a product of this, of justifiable divorce and remarriage and man, the fruit is hanging from the tree of what God has done in your marriage since then. A new marriage. He makes all things new. Now, if you're wrongly divorced, if you, over the course of the morning, are looking at, or you're listening to what, what has been said, and you go, man, I, I'm wrongly divorced, but I'm not remarried, my encouragement to you is remain as you are and reconcile to your spouse or reconcile to your spouse. If, they, if it's irreconcilable and they really won't reconcile, remain as you are. Stay single and draw on his grace daily like manna. If, though, you are divorced and remarried, wrongly divorced and remarried, you too stay as you are. You too stay as you are. God recognizes your new marriage or your second marriage or third marriage. It, it's marriage. He recognizes it in the high court of heaven. So stay as you are and be all in. That'd be my encouragement to you. Be all in. If the last one wasn't redemptive, man, this one is, especially if y'all are walking with the Lord. Let me encourage you um, to stay as you are. You may have divorced on sinful grounds. You may have remarried on sinful grounds, but you're still divorced and remarried, and God recognizes your divorce and remarriage as real divorce and remarriage. In this, this 1 Corinthians 7 passage, it says it three times. Remain as you are. Verse 17, verse 20, and 24. Remain as you are. And let me just couple that with this. Ask for 
and find complete forgiveness. If you're sitting here this morning saying, man, over the course of this morning, I realized I was divorced wrongly and even remarried wrongly. Man, ask and find forgiveness. You don't need to walk in shame either. You need to repent, confess your sins to the Lord, and you will find complete and absolute forgiveness. Man, Christians should not walk in shame, not when he's so available and so approachable to bring these things to him. You should not live in shame any more than you should for other sins you've committed in the past that have been forgiven. You shouldn't either be cavalier about it like it's nothing. Given what marriage represents, it sullies his name. So mourn, but don't walk in shame. It is forgivable. And my last encouragement to you is love the one you're with. Stay where you are and love the one you're with and love him or her well. Let me pray. God, I pray that this, um, these details that we've considered in these last few minutes will help people where I pray it will help folks um, that are in marriages right now that might be difficult. It'll help them to press on, to help them not even consider the D word, especially not knowing you and walking with you, Lord. I pray that, that the first result of this sermon this morning, this time that we've spent together, will be that those who are in difficult, painful, struggling marriages will realize the ample resources that we have in Christ with the Holy Spirit walking with us and in us, living in us. And Lord, the permanence of what this is supposed to be will be an overwhelming notion for those who are struggling so that it's just not even on the radar as a considerable option. Lord, I pray those that are struggling in this room today in marriages that are really hard will draw on you and will go the distance. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have been divorced um, or remarried justifiably. They might be carrying around some shame. Lord, I pray that you will take that shame off their shoulders today. Lord, I pray that today that they can see that there was a broken union. There were grounds for then union with another given the broken union through sexual immorality or abandonment. Lord, I pray in the third case for those who might recognize over the course of our morning together that they were divorced wrongly and even remarried wrongly, that you can even make that new. It's not an unforgivable sin. What a marvel that that's the kind of God that we have and what a marvel that the cross is that able. Lord, I pray this morning that we can enjoy your forgiveness. And Lord, those that might feel some sense of shame today that that will be left um, at the cross as well and that we can walk in forgiveness, walk in newness. Lord, I pray the areas in this sermon that I know that were confusing, that I bobbled, that may have misspoke, that you'll clear all that up and clean all that up. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak this morning and will have spoken in spite of me. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Before we take the supper, I want to remind us of something. I prayed this at the very beginning this morning. It's really the only thing that's given me the confidence to step up here is what we've talked about this morning is we're not talking about something ultimate. What we spent the morning on is talking about something that is penultimate. Penultimate is just shy of ultimate. We've been talking about something that's really important. Marriage. Some, something that, man, it's... I know when things are good in my marriage, man, my whole life is just like something. It's like wind in my back, no matter what's going on, when our marriage is strong and healthy and vibrant. And when things are struggling and when we're struggling in our marriage, man, it's like this black cloud. I get it. Marriage is hugely important. And all the baggage and all the heartache and pain that came in this room this morning and all this collection of stories has got to be a room full of people, though, that can realize and recognize marriage is not ultimate. We're not marriages. We're Christians. We've spent the morning talking about something that is penultimate. But we're going to end the morning enjoying something that's ultimate. That we have a groom that will never fail us. That will never disappoint. We have a beautiful, beautiful relationship with our Savior who died for us. We have a walk with the Lord that is not something that, that is as fragile as our walk with one another. And we have something that's going on with him that's eternal. You realize marriages are not eternal. We won't be married in heaven. Man, I love Christy, but I love Jesus more. I, it's more important that I'm thinking about spending eternity with the Lord than spending eternity with Christy. It matters. I want her there, but we're not going to be married in heaven. Does that put some things in perspective? Man, this feels weighty what we've talked about this morning. And it's right here. You can touch it. We can touch it. It's right here. But man, what we need to enjoy more than these, these last few minutes and cling to more than what we've thought about in these last few minutes is that we are married to a good and faithful God. I, think it, I don't think it's an accident that right in the middle of this passage, this whole chapter that's spent talking about marriage and divorce, is this notion from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 29. Listen to this as we go to take the supper. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Isn't it crazy in a chapter where he's talking about marriage? And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as those who were not rejoicing. And those who buy as those who had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. We are a people that are enjoying eternal realities. We spent a morning talking about some temporal stuff. Some hard temporal stuff. And some hard temporal stuff that we admit is intertwined with the vertical. But man, let's land on the eternal stuff. Let's land on a good groom and a great Lord that paid the price for us. Let's distribute the almonds. <laughs>